back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. We're glad to have you with us, whether it's your first time listening to the podcast or you're a many-time listener. We are breaking new ground today with our guest because we're having a Catholic bishop on for the first time. So I'd like to welcome Bishop Bill Walk who is a member of the Congregation of Holy Cross. He graduated from Notre Dame in 1989 and 1993 with his Masters of Divinity, and he's currently the Bishop of the Pensacola-Tallahassee Diocese. So, Bishop Walk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on this. Yes, it's an honor for me and for all of us here at the Faith Indy family to talk to you. We'd like to begin in the early stages of your life, so could you tell us some about your early life and family, please? Absolutely. I grew up in South Bend, actually, very close to the university. My grandfather was graduated 99 years ago, (laughs) which is fun, because if I said 100, you'd say, oh, you're just exaggerating. No, 99 years ago, I believe it's 19... whatever that is, 21. And then he taught there German and English for 40-some years. So he set up our family there in South Bend, just a block from campus. And he was neighbors with Knut Rockney, and so uh, they were friends. And my dad grew up watching Knut and some students practicing in the backyard and everything. It was just a great thing. Great, wow. Great place to grow up there in South Bend. And we had always had, we were, I was at Christ the King Parish, just a little north of the, of the campus. Sure. And so we had Holy Cross priests there and sisters and some brothers as well. So when I was discerning in high school about the possibility of a priestly vocation, Um, It was pretty obvious I was going to go into Holy Cross and at Notre Dame, you know, which is right down the street. So I entered there and went into the seminary there. It was over the course of those eight years in formation, most of them spent at Notre Dame, but one year in Colorado Springs in the novitiate, that that I just, it, it became very clear, this is what I should do. This is what God wants me to do, to be a Holy Cross priest. So I was, I took final vows in 93 and was ordained a deacon. And then in 94 in the spring, I was ordained a priest in Holy Cross. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm excited to get into all those aspects of your story. As you think back to being a child, who were some of the mentors and models of faith for you early on that really have stayed with you even to this point in your life? Clearly, my parents. My parents were the, the biggest influences on my life in many respects, of course, but especially and including the faith. They lived their Catholic faith just, just very quietly, but but purposefully. My father was a physician there in town, and my mother worked with him sometimes, And but most of the time she was taking care of the 10 of us children. <laughs> Two girls and then eight boys in a row. Wow. But they, they just, they, they surrounded us with, with images in the house, you know, so there's statues and images of, uh, of the Lord and the crucifixes and, and Mary, of course, and the saints. And we, of course, went to Mass as a family every Sunday and Holy Day. But also, this was very important, we prayed the rosary every night as a family. Mm. All 10 of us or 12 of us would kneel down together after dinner and pray the rosary. And that was just it's just so formative for us. You know, as little kids, of course, you're fidgeting, you're, you're wondering, okay, I got to get back to playing Frisbee or baseball or whatever we were doing that night. But you know, now that we look back on it, and even then I would say we knew this is really important, not only because we're praying, but we're all together as a family praying this prayer for 15 minutes every single night. So that was really formative. Besides my parents, my great uncle was a Holy Cross priest and, and a professor at Notre Dame of economics. Now, I'm not 
I am not a professor. I'm not drawn to that. That did not that <laughs> did not appeal to me. But just his life as a priest, celebrating the sacraments and praying, that really appealed to me as well. And then some other examples of people who were just living their faith really well and in, in quiet ways, but very purposeful ways, as I say. Yeah, I always like hearing that because sometimes here you are, a bishop of a diocese, and people maybe put you on a pedestal or see you in a certain way. But I think it's important for people to understand there's a foundation and a history that has brought you to this point and that you're not here alone or here in terms of your own virtue or merit, but that that a lot of people have contributed to each of our lives in terms of our growth in faith and holiness. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it wasn't just praying or celebrating Mass, you know, seeing priests do that that appealed to me. It was also service. And so I was privileged to go to a, uh, on a small service trip, mm-hmm. small being, I think there were only four of us with the priest. We went down to Mexico and didn't go to the tourist places. We just went into these towns and, and actually bartered with them. We bought their goods so that we could sell them back in South Bend. Huh. And then we gave them money for their livelihood and everything, but just got to know a little bit more about life there and our neighbors. And and that that's really the first time that I ever entered into service like that. And um, that just started me on this path that where I just, that's what draws me mostly to the priesthood or in life in general is service. Mm. So that's led me to soup kitchens and prisons over overseas or here locally, just helping people and wanting to do that more and more, wanting to give over my life in service for others. Yeah, certainly the model of the Good Shepherd of laying down his life and serving his sheep. So we can identify with that. You talked about this notion of thinking about being a priest. Do you remember the first time that that happened and how that stuck with you? Well, you know, we used to have these books in grade school. Mine said Billy. That was my name, Billy and his school years. And, you know, everyone had one. And you can tuck in certain achievements or your report card. And, sure. and then, you you know, you talk about, you, you list my friends this year and everything. It's really a neat thing. So we have that from Christ the King grade school every year. And the, one of the questions was, when I grow up, I want to be A. And you could check off certain things or you could add. So I would check off doctor and then our, or I would the next year I would add priest and then policeman and then priest and you know so um, it was already there then but it was just more you know that was pretty much on par with being a police officer so I could you know really ride in the car and ride drive around fast sure um, didn't hadn't put a lot of thought into that but then later on it was um, high school where and this is kind of funny I actually can say that I literally got a call hmm because I had mentioned this to my great uncle, of course, that, you know, I, uh, I'm thinking about it. Maybe. Sure. If, if God wants me to, I'll be a priest. I said, this is when I was a sophomore in high school. Well, he called the vocation director there, um, his brother priest. And so I remember it was dur- during my junior year, the Super Bowl, that the phone rang and my dad said, Bill, there's it's a priest. He wants to talk to you. And I said, during the Super Bowl? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I okay, yeah, and, and he said, "Hi, I'm so and so. It's Father Andre Levier. I heard you're interested in, in discerning." I said, "Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about this after the game, though?" <laughs> right. I mean, I just I love watching the game. He's sure, sure. He said, "If you want to ride, come over to campus. Can you ride? You're close to campus. So, yeah, I'll ride my bike there. I'll be there next week." Okay, great. And then we started just to meet every other month and talk and discern. But I so I didn't make that move. I, I and that's consistent with many times in my life, including my, um, my being called to be a bishop. It was that phone call from out of the blue. Mm. So that's pretty consistent. 
I have to say I'm a little bit jealous. There have been certain times in my life in discernment where I thought, if I could just have a clear, concrete sign here, maybe a phone call or something, but it doesn't always work out that way. Absolutely, and that's that's the thing about that call, and we can talk about that if you want, but that, that phone call that I received from the Pope's ambassador yeah. to become a bishop, that came completely out of the blue. And my only consolation, because it was a very difficult phone call, I think, to receive, you know, it's just really changed my life in an instant. Mm -hmm. The only consolation is that I think that's, I can honestly say this is not me at all. I didn't apply for this. I wasn't hoping for it. I didn't want it. Didn't think it was possible. It came out of the blue, which has to say something about the Holy Spirit, that Mm -hmm. this is the calling from God to do this. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Now, something that is somewhat unique about your family is you also have a brother who is a Holy Cross priest. How did that work out, and what was the timeline of that? What's it been like to share this journey with your brother? Oh, my gosh. You can imagine having a brother twice over like that, a blood brother, and then someone in Holy Cross and as a priest. It's just such a great blessing. So I went in, as I said, after high school. Neil, who is three years younger than I, did not do that. He went to Purdue and was graduated and was working for a few years. Mm -hmm. And as he was discerning, you know, the next step in his life, he says, he tells a story, and he said he kind of had that in the back of his mind, I think most boys growing up in the Catholic Church, just at least ask that question, what if I were a priest? But then he said, as he reflected on it, and and it's really humbling for me, he said he saw that I have this sense of joy and peace, and he said, I want that. So then he entered 10 years after. And it's just, it's, as I said, it's a great blessing. There's a little competition as in everything, but (laughs) mostly it's, I, 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 to be at his final vows was an amazing thing. I couldn't help but just weep, you know, as he was making his final vows. It was just a very beautiful moment. And then at his ordination, you know, the bishop ordains and then all the priests lay hands on the uh, newly ordained priest as a sign of fraternity. And as I did that, it's just oh, such a great feeling, as you can imagine, doing that to your own brother. And I just remember putting my hands on his head and then pausing and then leaning down and kissing the top of his head. Yeah. Something you wouldn't do to, to the other right. candidates, of course. But And then just sharing that now, you know, we're gonna, we go on retreats occasionally and, and vacations, and we call each other a lot and just cry on each other's shoulders. Nah, but, you know, just uh, ask you know, each other's advice and share things with each other. And sure. It's really a great blessing. Yeah, there's that intimate knowledge that you would have of each other as blood brothers and, and siblings that others wouldn't, and then you combine that with your you know religious brotherhood. Uh, what a, what a mutual gift for sure. Yep. In terms of important moments of your formation, you talked about this eight year process. Part of that was at Notre Dame. Part of that was with the novitiate in Colorado. All those things. What were some important moments that you think really shaped you as you eventually entered life as a religious and a priest? Mm-hmm. I think it's really two things that I look at. One, of course, is the community aspect. I grew up in a community of 10 children. And in fact, all eight of us boys were in one bedroom for a couple of years, you know, mm. just four bunk beds. So yeah. I just, I, I always had a lot of people around me. So when I went into the seminary, seeing that and being with men my age who are also asking the same questions and, you know, discerning and interested in the same things, that was really formative for me, especially then at the novitiate. So after I was graduated with an undergrad, then I spent a year in Colorado Springs at the novitiate, which is kind of like a monastic year of prayer and community life. And I really fell in love with that effect so much so that I seriously discerned becoming a brother at that point, switching from the priesthood to the brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, even told my novice master that, and he said, well, okay, great. 
if that's your calling, then we'll see. But I'd like you to go back to Notre Dame and take at least a semester of theology, and we'll see what happens there. And I went back and, again, was drawn to uh, sacramental ministry as a priest. But it's that community that really drew me in. And But the other thing was, as I mentioned before, service. Going, I think I would pick things. Every year you have to do some form of service, either once a week or in the summers or over break, you know, for a longer period. And for some reason, I don't know if someone gave me this advice, but because this is not like me, I was pretty quiet and shy, but I would pick the things that would scare me most. Mm. And so I worked, you know, just first working with developmentally disabled, disabled children. I had never done that before. Loved it. You know, next thing, working in a juvenile detention center. Loved it. Working at a soup kitchen where I eventually worked then for seven years in Phoenix. Loved it. You know, was challenged and loved it. I did a summer service project at Notre Dame in South Dakota and loved that. And then finally, I um, worked in a prison when I was in theology, a federal prison for a summer. Very challenging, but absolutely loved it. And and for me, it wasn't really the academics. The academics are great. I, I got a lot. I think it was a solid 2.999 repeating student, <laughs> right. both undergrad and MDiv. So that's fine. But it was mostly service. And it, it was just putting myself out there and growing as a minister, as a as a disciple, not just because I was going to help these poor people, but they taught me so much more about myself and about ministry and about the faith that every time I would come back from one of those experiences, I had to process and think. And I just said, yep, I'm being called deeper to continue to do this all my life. Hmm. Well, I think that's such an important point because fear can be a real impediment to commitment, to doing things that stretch us, maybe that we find God calling us to. Do you have any words of advice or wisdom for us in terms of those who might be having trouble overcoming fear or taking that leap of faith to to do something that they maybe feel called to, but they're afraid of what it might be like or, or what it might demand of them? I do. And I, I'm not just giving this advice as one who's like, made it and who doesn't deal with that my advice is to get over yourself get over (laughs) ourselves and i really mean that i mean i'll just take for for instance i was terrified of public speaking when i was younger actually all the way up to a year before i was ordained a priest or deacon terrified i mean in the seminary you know we'd sign up to do readings at mass there are other opportunities to do things and just i I would hate it or or a, a presentation in class and everything and so much so, again, that I thought, I can't do, how can I be a priest if I feel like throwing up every time I get up there, even just to read at Mass? Yeah. But I, I had a really good spiritual director, Professor at Notre Dame and CSC at the time, who said, kind of just gave me that advice. He said, you know, it's not about you. Basically, get over yourself. Yeah. He said, the people sitting there need to hear the Word of God. Who cares if you fall down or you stutter or you trip over your words or mess up, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just give them the word. Hmm. And, you know, I, I knew that, whoa, that's going to be important. I'm going to file that away and that's going to be like that my big moment. And it wasn't at the time, but it, it as I thought about it more and more, I thought, you know, that it that really is important. So, so and that's the case for anything that we do for service, for meeting new people or, or taking on a new responsibility, a new job, a move. A lot of times it's all about me. What if this happens to me? What if this, you know, what if I do this? What if I fail and all that? Well, uh, I think part of it is just saying, you know what, this is bigger than, than me. This is, I want to, I want to live my faith. I want to, I want to help other people. So who cares what happens to me? The more we can do that, I think that the more we can get over our fears. Yeah, and I think also the reassurance that ultimately it's God's work, and God is working through us. It's not 
all dependent on me for this to have success, whatever that means in, in that ministry of that moment, that, but that we're vessels of God's grace. And so I sometimes felt intimidated in the work that we're doing with Faith in D. Well, how do you speak to such a large audience or, or be part of this? But just to let go of that fear, let go of that pressure to say, this is God's work in the end. Eventually, we're going to hand it off to someone else, and it will still be God's work when, that's, when that time comes. Absolutely. And another thing is to look in the past and ask yourself or just try to recall moments when you were really scared or worried about something and then you did it. It may not have turned out perfectly, but it turned out something happened. And, you know, in in many cases, it was a good thing. Yeah. And so it's you apply that to the present and the future and say, well, God is with me and God will be with me. So all will be well. Great. So I'd like to turn to these early years after having major final vows and then being a deacon and a priest. What were some important moments for you where you really got your footing under you and you had a sense of, I'm really, I'm really doing the work that I've been preparing for all this time? You know, I'm glad you asked that because it certainly wasn't something that happened with final vows or ordination. It's not like, you know, oh, now you're ready to go and, you know, lay it on the people. Although, you know, it's fun for me to see seminarians and, you know, new priests today. It's kind of like, all right, here we go. I'm going out to save the world. I love that attitude, but... I'm thinking, no, you're going to learn a lot, actually, yeah, yeah. about yourself and about ministry. But so each of the places where I served in Colorado Springs, in a parish back at Notre Dame in campus ministry, um, at the soup kitchen in Phoenix, and then at the parish in um, Austin, I, I, I learned, I grew a lot. I learned from the people who I was serving. I think about especially that first parish experience in Colorado Springs. I didn't really know. I mean, so I was there that summer as a almost finally professed person as a seminary and then I went back to Notre Dame took final vows and was ordained a deacon then the next day and then went back to the parish and now I'm boom I'm a deacon I mean that's not theological boom but anyway <laughs> now I'm a deacon you know the next day so I just kind of had to they knew that I was new and they were very patient with me um, I would mess up you know in preaching or just doing different rites like marriage or baptism or something mm-hmm. like that but they 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 celebrated that with me and they weren't even they actually were open to giving me some advice or criticism, which wasn't always well received by me because again, you think you know everything, but I look back on that and I thought that was so important to me to, to do that. Same thing happened in many different ministries. And then finally, back when I was in uh, a, a pastor in Austin, I was doing a lot of ministry in Spanish. I had studied it. I went away to study it in Guatemala and then Mexico, but I was still terrified. I was very scared of doing that. And all of a sudden I was the pastor. I had quinceaneras, weddings, masses every weekend. Hmm. And again, the people were extremely understanding and patient with me. And they actually taught me and guided me through that. And um, I remember there was one time when in English I could just walk, prance and preach, walk around and preach. And mm-hmm. I still do that. Mm-hmm. But in Spanish, I was tied to a text. And they said, you know, Padre, we think this is the time when you can do the same thing you do in English. And I said, there is no way I'm going to step away from a text. And like, Padre, we want to see you do this. This is, this is important. Just talk to us from your heart. And I did it. Well, I had some index cards and it was terrifying, but I did it, you know, and they clapped afterwards. It was not a good homily. It was short because I had to memorize it. But then that just, just things like that, they gave me, they taught me how to do this and how to speak from my heart, how to minister. Each of the ministries where I served did that for me. Yeah, that's neat. It was reminding me of a time I had in Mexico and my Spanish has uh, unfortunately waned in, in the, since then. But I remember 
in English, able to being able to express myself a little bit better, but in Spanish, probably sounding very monotone, or I was just trying to get concentrating so hard to get the words right, and they said something effect like, "You could put a little emotion into it. It's okay. <laughs> we could get to know you." That's right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's good because you know if someone comes up to us and says you know something like my. English no good you know mm-hmm. we're like no my gosh it's awesome you're doing so well yeah but for some reason when we do that in Spanish you know we say we're just so terrified but they're they're just happy that we're trying anyway but yeah it's 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 really to to learn from other people and, and to let them help to form and guide us as well that's been important in my life yeah those human connections that certainly go beyond the bounds of language so as a priest what were some challenges you encountered that you, where you really had to lean on your formation, your religious community, your prayer life to overcome? You know, leaving initial formation, taking final vows and being ordained and then just kind of going out into the world is extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. I see it. I saw it in myself. I see it in my classmates. I see it in the seminarians and young priests here because you have that. I mean, in the seminary, it is, it's just, it's very affirming. You're surrounded by your friends, your classmates. You know, it's a time to really focus on yourself. And then all of a sudden you're thrust out there and you're on, you know, it's you. And a lot of times you're alone. You're separated from all your classmates and from anyone who knew you before you were ordained. So that was really challenging. And I think at the time I had to learn how to stay connected with my friends and my brothers in Holy Cross who were assigned all over the, around the country to also to build up that community with people with whom I was not in the seminary. You know, I lived in my first rectory. I was with um, someone who was 20 years older and someone who was 40 years older. So the three of us had to form a community mm-hmm. there, not knowing each other before. And we did, we did really well, I think. So doing that, I think, was really helpful. And then also, I had to try to navigate friendships within the parish you know, what's appropriate to do to have, is it appropriate to have, to be friends with parishioners, with families? How much time should you spend with them? What's, what's appropriate to share with them, you know, about your struggles and what you're going through and everything. So all that was a learning process, but, but for me, thankfully I had some good mentors in Holy Cross, good pastors and superiors to help to guide me through that. That's wonderful. And we heard that service was really a pillar to your vocation and your life. What changed for you in terms of being a priest and being able to serve people, not only in the ways you had before, but also with the sacraments? Did that bring you a lot of joy in a life of service? It really did. And you know what? It sounds funny, but I hadn't really thought about that a lot in the seminary. It was Mm. more service, you know. But, you know, the more I did it, the more I absolutely loved it. And by it, I mean presided, you know, or celebrated the sacraments. The more I preached, the more I would celebrate the Eucharist. I get, you know, it's kind of like, for, it was almost, this sounds really bad, but almost like an afterthought, like, oh yeah, as a priest, I got to say Mass too a lot. Yeah, well, that'll be easy. I'll just, I'll follow the rubrics and everything. And as they say, you 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 do the red and you say, say the black. black. Right? <laughs> and so that should, shouldn't be too tough. But of course, it's the mystery of the Eucharist for everyone, but as well for the presider that really transforms us and draws you into it. Mm-hmm. And so the more I did that, the more I thought, wow, this is really what it's all about. I mean, service is great. Community is great. Mm-hmm. But this is what I was made to do, you know, to preside, to help celebrate people's funerals and weddings and baptisms and confessions. So yeah, definitely in the doing, I think I just, I was totally taken in and I'm so humbled and honored to do that. 
And now as a bishop, to be able to ordain and confirm, as I do constantly, especially in the spring, you know, or dedicate an altar for the Mass. I mean, it's just, I just I'm blown away. I look in the mirror and I'm, I just think, who am I? How do I get to do all these things, you know? Well, it's because you received that phone call. So let's, let's <laughs> turn right. to that because... I think people, and I've heard bits and pieces of this story before, but I'd love to hear you share it with our audience. I think people might be surprised by what you said, that there there was a a, a twinge of sadness in that phone call and what that meant for your life. Could you tell us about the phone call and what that was going to mean for your life to become a bishop? Absolutely. So I was in my uh, eighth year. I was finishing my eighth year as pastor of the parish in um, Austin, St. Ignatius Martyr. And loving it. It was a great parish, big, multicultural, and all of that. And I just finished celebrating the uh, mass for the uh, eighth grade graduation. So it was in May, May okay. twenty, May twentieth. But during that mass, lightning struck near the church. Now that should have been a sign. But anyway, <laughs> that's also a consistent thing. Every time I, when I for my final vows and all three ordinations, there's been lightning, a storm outside. Wow. But anyway lightning struck and so the the air conditioner was half down i don't understand that but half it lost half its power and i knew we had a wedding later on that afternoon it was austin it was hot so i said goodbye to all the kids took pictures with the eighth grade the graduates sent them out yeah yeah go go off to high school love you goodbye and then went outside to work on the air conditioner i don't know what i'm doing it's this huge unit and um, in the middle of that uh, the phone rang and it said Washington DC unknown number so I thought well this should be interesting maybe it's the White House <laughs> and I just propped it up on my shoulder hello this is Father Bill and as soon as I heard his voice the nuncio I didn't know his voice I didn't know what the nuncio was it wasn't part of my life but I knew there was something something quite serious happening but he just said hello I am the apostolic nuncio to the United States <laughs> and I said uh, I just looked at the phone again and I said Hello, this is Father Bill. You know, just I, and he said, "Hello, I, I, I am the Apostolic Nuncio. I'm Archbishop Christophe Pierre." And I said, "Sir, I don't know what that is, so I, I gotta go. I don't know what do you want." Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I got an air conditioner fix. And then he said, "I, I have very important news from Pope Francis that will change your life." Hmm. And that's like a punch in the gut. <laughs> and he said, "Are you alone?" And I said, "Well, uh, yeah. Where are you?" I said, "I'm outside. I'm fixing the air conditioner." <laughs> of course. He said, "You are." Yes. But you are alone. I said, yes. He said, then I will share my news, but do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit will take care of everything. Well, now I dropped to my knees, basically, and I panicked, and I just—I I think I was rambling. I just said, what, 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 do you want names? Is that why you're calling me? You want na- I got, I'll give you names. Oh, my gosh, I got so many names. I'll give you priests. Yeah. Why, why are you calling me? I mean, because I just— I heard that if, if you get a call from the nuncio as a priest, that's probably why, you yeah. know. And um, we calm down, calm down. And then uh, I said, well, maybe, did you mean to call my brother, Neil? <laughs> He's a better priest. And he said, uh, are you not William? And I said, I am. He said, then you are the man. <laughs> and then I said, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a religious. I'm a Holy Cross religious. Have, have you called my provincial right. and my superior general? And he said, Father, we have a higher authority than those <laughs> men. And so... I, I just pulled out everything and then finally was brought to silence and he said, okay, are you ready? And I said, yeah, yeah, I don't, this isn't happening. So whatever you're going to say, go right. ahead. And then he said it and it was kind of like slow motion, you know, Pope Francis has chosen you to be the Bishop of the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. Long, long title. Hmm. The words were just washing over my, me, you know, in my head. And I said, sir, that's why I don't think this is real. Is that a real place? <laughs> and he said, oh, father. Miles and miles of beautiful beaches. You will love it, you know. <laughs> so um, 
I asked more questions and then, you know, it was pretty clear. I was just kind of a little emotional and breathe. I mean, it's just, I had 10 minutes, all this happened in 10 minutes, changed my life. Yeah. And he said, are, are you okay, father? And I said, Bishop, give me a break. I mean, give me a moment. Right. I said, don't you remember when you got this phone call? And he said, oh yes, yes, yes. It's very emotional. Anyway, I need an answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so he said, Pope Francis is waiting. What shall I tell him? Well, I didn't imagine that Francis is behind him. Right. You know, like, What's he right. saying? Right. What's he saying? <laughs> Shh. But I just took a deep breath and I said, yes, with the help of God, I say yes. Oh, good, good. You may tell no one for nine days. It will be announced in Rome on this day and blah, blah. Wow. And that was pretty much it. I did bargain to tell my younger brother before the, the announcement and my parents. And he said yes to both of those. Mm. And then he hung up and then that was it. You know, I actually pushed the reset button on the air conditioner and it worked. And then I had to hold that secret for nine days wow. for two weekends there at the parish. It was really hard. But just uh, to get back to your original thing about grief, you know, people think, wow, that's a dream, you know, and maybe some priests do dream and fantasize about that phone call and Mm -hmm. hope and pray that it comes. Not so much these days, that's for sure, but I think in the past. But for me, that was just not even an option. It was laughable, I hate to say it. So um, there was a lot of grieving then about leaving Austin, leaving the parish, leaving the priesthood, leaving Holy Cross in a sense. Yes, I still have CSC. I'm still a member kind of of the congregation, but I'm a full member of the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, so I can't be both. Mm -hmm. So that's just, it's really hard. I never anticipated, when I took final vows at the Basilica there on campus for Holy Cross, it never, ever was an option or crossed my mind that I would ever leave Holy Cross. And here I was being told that, yep, you're leaving Holy Cross to join the diocese to be a bishop. So it's, it's great. And I, I love, love, love being a priest. I've, I've always loved that. Being a bishop now five years, I, I like it. Yeah. I like it, but <laughs> it's uh, not, a, not something I chose. So I'm just trying to really go all in and be a good bishop. Sure. But I love being a priest more than anything else. Yeah. Well, I think that's a beautiful story and, and thank you for sharing it. And in some ways, it probably speaks to why you were chosen because you weren't seeking this out. You weren't after the power or the prestige that that seemingly might come with this, but you, you were very willing to do the work. And I think that's important for people to understand that it, as, as, a, as a vowed religious, that this was a rarer event than if you would have been a diocesan priest. And so if, if we could just touch on that for a moment, this part of what, what drew you to this well, this whole life was the community of Holy Cross. And you talked about that brotherhood and that, how that was important. How has your life changed in your relationship with Holy Cross since you've become a bishop? Well, first of all, you know, my classmates and Holy Cross in general, they're, they're, they're proud. It's, it's, a, it's a proud moment for our congregation. And um, by the way, I read a letter from our founder, Blessed Basil Moreau, mm-hmm. in 1861, I believe. And he was writing to everyone back then in France and now the United States and Notre Dame and where they were, basically gushing in tears, just saying how exciting this was that our first member of Holy Cross has been chosen, Bishop Dufal, has been chosen as a bishop. And boy, I read that and that was just, that was, I read that on my retreat, my canonical retreat before my ordination. Mm -hmm. My spiritual director gave me that talk about the tears, you know, that was, and it said something like, I get even emotional thinking about it now, but Moreau said, I have told our brother and assured him, and as as I assure all of you, you are all 
worthy and proud members of the congregation of Holy Cross, sons of Holy Cross forever. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to read that, you know, here I am on my retreat, just grieving, thinking about leaving Holy Cross, and just to hear that from our founder, our saintly founder, was really affirming. So just to have that brotherhood still, I have that. I don't have it on a daily basis. I don't live in community. I live alone for the first time in, in my life. But also just everything that I learned in Holy Cross, the emphasis on the cross, on the hope, on community, on love, on joy, on perspective, uh, education, parish mission, all of this stuff is just part of my DNA. And I try to share it with our priests here and in my homilies and my talks and everything I do. So I'm still representing Holy Cross. I still feel a part of the, 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 the congregation, but not physically. And that's really difficult. I wish I could live in community, but that's not what God wants me for me right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure the people of your diocese are appreciative of the sacrifices you have made in that regard. And I think it's inspiring for the rest of us to hear when we're called to make other sacrifices in our lives. You discussed that some of those early years as a priest, you learned a lot, and I imagine the same has been true in these early years as a bishop. What have been some of the lessons that have been instructive for you? Hmm. I think to, first of all, to trust the people around me and to delegate. Uh, <laughs> I, I would do that anyway because I, I had to learn. My, my learning curve was straight up, basically, you know, um, as a bishop. A lot of guys are auxiliary bishops, so they'll be, you know, assistants or auxiliaries in a parish, or they're vicar generals or monsignors, you know, and they kind of move up that way. But I went right from being a pastor of a parish to the ordinary of, the, of a diocese, so I had a lot to learn. So just to not be afraid to ask, and then to be myself. I think I would have anyway, but maybe in the early days, some people might have been offended. But like when I was at the end of Mass, you know, after the announcements, I'm putting on my miter, and I would put it on backwards with the flaps over my face, you know, and, and I said, I'm sorry, you guys, I'm still learning this. And they would laugh, but it's just, it's important for people to see that, that I'm learning. We're all growing in this, you know, even in this ministry and in the in the trappings of the ministry, I, I'm, I'm learning that. So that's been important, but also just to lean on people. Certainly, I'm a newcomer to this diocese. I don't, I, I was anyway, five years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the history. I don't know you know, a lot of the culture and everything of the church here in Northwest Florida. So to, to trust in others and not just come you know, waltzing in here and say, I, I'm in charge, here's what we're gonna do. We're making all these changes. But as with anything else, to, uh, to learn from the people with, that you're serving as well, you know, and walk with them and not just direct them. That's been really important for me. And also I should say, this was really neat. On one of my first retreats with the region the bishops of this region, so Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Maryland. Mm-hmm. I remember we were at this retreat center. It was four months after I was ordained and started here. And I was walking in the along in the woods along a path, and I hear someone behind me say, hey, hey, wait. I think he might have said my name, but I don't know, because yeah. nobody really knew me then. Sure. And it was almost like high school, like, hey, kid, wait up. <laughs> and so I turned around, and there's Cardinal Worrell from uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah. And uh, so he caught up to me, and he said, how are you doing? You're the new guy. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I am. And I said, uh, frankly, it's it's really tough. I'm just struggling a little bit. So it's a lonely life, and I didn't know, and, and all this, poor me, you know, all that. And um, And he said, I said mostly about Holy Cross and how hard it was to be away from everyone. And he said, Bill, no offense to Holy Cross. It's a great order. Love it. He said, great congregation. But he said, you've got to start thinking along these terms. We are your brothers now. We are your community now. Mm. And I remember thinking I should be offended. I don't know why. But, I, you know, just because no one talks about Holy Cross like that. No one just puts, puts it aside. Yeah. But 
but he's right, of course, in that they are my brothers and we have to be brothers. We have to, you know, build that up just as Peter and Paul did and Barnabas and James, you know, in the, in the, in the earliest years, we have to build that up and seek each other out and, and seek each other's counsel and, and wisdom and, and discern together. And so that's been really important too. It's hard to do that, but I'm, I'm close getting to be close friends with some of the bishops. Now we meet up, we meet up not only at our conference and our retreats, but at other times of the year as well. That's really important. Yeah, I'm sure there's a special knowledge and shared experience that comes with being a bishop, and you don't know exactly what it's like unless you've, <laughs> you know, donned the, the mitre and, and all those things. So uh, I, I would imagine that would be important to you. Do you ever feel, I guess, extra pressure in the sense of like a successor to the apostles and kind of the gravity of what this calling is asking of you as, as an individual? Oh my goodness, yes, often I do. It could be something, well, it could be ordaining someone, you know, mm-hmm. there I remember my first ordination, you know, and this this happened when I was, when I, had, when I had my first wedding as a priest or first baptism. Yeah. I remember thinking at that time or first confession, I remember thinking, well, that was interesting. Now someone's going to come behind me and do the real thing, you know, <laughs> but no, it counted. Yeah. And the same thing is happening now at ordinations mm-hmm. or at confirmation, not, not now five years sure. into it, but so you feel that, that weight that no, this is it, you know, this is what's I'm anointed to do this. So that's really neat. But also, yeah, just in, in especially when difficult decisions have to be made, that's when you really feel it. I mean, and probably the hardest one for me, well, has been having to kind of step away from two missions. It was just time to do that. There was very small numbers, small in numbers, and, and they're closer to other churches, and so we could do that. But then to be the one to kind of suppress that, a lot of times people will say, well, I, I, I disagree. I want to go over your head. And I say, There's, there is no over my head in yeah. these matters. Well, I'll go to the archbishop. He's not over me. Right. Well, I'll go to cardinal. They're not over me. I'll go to the pope. He's not really over me. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really you feel that. And I think probably the most difficult thing was then to to dispense people from the Sunday obligation at the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. signing that document and promulgating that for the diocese as of noon, this Friday, blah, blah. You know, all Catholics within the diocese are not obligated to um, celebrate Mass on Holy Days and Sundays, you know. That just, I thought, who, what little boy, you know, dreams about doing that one day? I'm gonna, one day I'm going to suppress <laughs> the Mass uh, chapel or I'm going to, you know, take away that dispensation. Yeah. We learned a lot from those days. There are things that I won't do, we hopefully ever again, won't have to. But uh, that was the right decision then, of course, sure. I believe. But still, it's just, wow, what a... What, a, what pressure it's that was uh, that was my decision in the end I got a lot of advice of course every other bishop was doing it in the country but that that's when it really hit me yeah well thank you for sharing that I think the everyday Catholics among us I certainly remember the triduum of 2020 and thinking this is so strange I mean to not mm-hmm. I mean to be physically well thank goodness but uh, not to be able to go and celebrate the sacraments. I just, and I remember tearing up watching the, the live stream of mass and my sons were looking at me like, what, what's going on, dad? Like, why, yep. why are you upset? And I just, it was such a foreign time. That'll definitely stick with me the rest of my life. And I think it's important for people to know that that was just as painful, if not more so for us bishops and priests. I know for the priests it was. Yeah. We didn't get ordained to, you know, celebrate mass in front of an iPhone or something like right. that, you know. Um, so yeah, it was very painful, very yeah. difficult. And, and I, I wanted to ask you, so you've been a, a pastor, which as a pastor, you're, you're kind of responsible for the souls, the, the people in this parish. And then as a bishop, it's like you're responsible not only 
for the souls of the diocese, also for the priests and their ministry. Can you talk about how you have learned to interact and be a shepherd and mentor to the priests in your diocese? As I said, I really love being a priest, and that's what I got to know over the 25 years that I was a priest, 24 before I was a bishop. And so that when I came here, I just kind of said, well, I'm a pastor for a larger church, now a larger parish. And so um, it became clear to me right away that that was my first task, is to be a father to the priests. And um, thankfully, right after I got here, of course, they all came to the ordination, the consecration, everything. And then um, shortly after that, we had a convocation of priests. We have one every fall. And so I was able to uh, just clear out the schedule and I talked to them and shared who I was. But, and, you know, they asked, well, what's your vision? I said, my vision, it's to learn how to wear this miter and do all this stuff. (laughs) Again, they were laughing too, but, but I said, my vision is to be a father for you and to give you whatever you need to, to do well and to be good shepherds in, in this local church, to build up this local church. And then I remember, you know, the first thing I did was I read the first constitution of Holy Cross to them. We have eight constitutions in the constitutions itself. So I read that first one and, you know, it starts with what has become my motto, my Episcopal motto, come follow me. And I walked them through that and uh, gave a little reflection on that. And they, they, they said, thank you, because we actually prayed for a religious order bishop because we want that sense of community we want that history we want you to challenge us and encourage us to do that and so i just kind of ran with that and i i love being with our priests i love our priests i mean we've i'm sure we've had some disagreements and i've made some unpopular decisions but generally and i'm not just saying this i I think i love them and they love me and i even dropped that the l word on them last year that was a little awkward you know a whole room full of guys i said you know coming out of this pandemic it was hard it was painful but you guys did it people are some people i've gotten i get some complaints but mostly they love you i said i'm so proud of you and I I love you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was awkward. And I said, I know. I just said that. I know. And they <laughs> laughed. But I said, it's true. And so I say that more, you know, more often when I'm gathered with them at the Chrism Mass or at an ordination. I really do. I just have so much affection for them and for what they do. So that's been really important. And then it, it's that's not it's not just to the priests, but of course that starts with them, then the deacons and the religious and the, 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 the parishioners here. I really try to be a father figure to them mm-hmm. as well. Well, even from a distance, that certainly comes through. So I'm sure that's appreciated by so many in the diocese. As a bishop, you talked about some of the challenges that that are facing bishops, especially today. What are some of the important messages that you have tried to convey as a bishop in your diocese? What do you think are some of the important messages that, that the church needs to convey to the world today? couple of things and that's that's good thank you for asking those questions i think one important message is this we are not as divided as the media and others like to say mm-hmm. they love to portray us as fighting as having all these different opinions and um different ways of, of ministering and all that and and trying to compete against one another i i can't tell you when we get together i mean of course like everywhere else we'll we'll hash things out and all that but the dinners, the, the the meals, the socials, the, the the liturgies. It's just it's good friends coming together. There's so much laughter and joy. And yet, you know, sometimes I'll do an interview with the media and it's something very vanilla y about something we've done here. And like one of the last questions will be 
Bishop, are you angry at your brothers for not doing this? Hmm. Whatever it was, you know, yeah. for starting this new program or something. And I'll, my reaction is like, well, what? <laughs> uh, what does this have to do with them? I love them. No, they've got their own issues in their dioceses. Yeah. But it's just, you know, Satan tries to divide. And uh, I'm not saying the media is doing that, but but just in general, people mm-hmm. like to divide us and, and portray us as divided. Of course, we don't all agree on everything. And that's pretty obvious. But there's a lot more unity than you think than that, that you're hearing about. And now it's up to us to promote that more and more, I believe, and to, to, to tell people about that. I guess the other thing is this, that it's very common to say, you know, oh, this is the worst it has ever been in mm-hmm. the world, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this is the worst and all that, you know, the world is going to ruin and uh, finally Jesus will come again. Well, that's not our faith at all. There's been worse times. There's been times when it's been extremely worse. Mm-hmm. Someone said the year 574, I think, was the worst. I don't know what <laughs> what that year, but you think about it. I mean, you just think about all the things with just disease and slavery and uh, poverty and no health care and all this stuff. And I'm not saying this is the best of times either. But anyway, sure. just instead of doing that or just saying, boo-hoo, poor us, you know, it's all our fault. I think also to step back and say, you know what, it's the world is as it is. It was better in Jesus' time in certain ages, in certain things, it was worse. But the, what we need to focus on is... The, the grace of God, the presence of the Lord, you know, the gift of salvation, the gift of faith, instead of just, you know, blaming everyone saying it's their fault, you know, I would be so much better. The church would be so much better if they weren't here or if I lived in a different time. No, it, it's Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, as it says, I believe in Hebrews. So, you know, that's really the focus instead of trying to blame a people or the, our, our, the, the, the times in which we live. I think it's good for people to really, all, including myself, to just focus again and again on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid. I am with you always, he said. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I think there's a concern I hear in, in, the, in the church and in those who are really invested in the future of the church is, how will this go on? How will this continue? How can we get a younger generation that you know, we talk about the growing of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, uh, people who have disaffiliated with organized religion in the church. How can we continue this for future generations? Any insight that you've had on that as a bishop of how we engage the younger generation and continue to present the good news of Jesus? I think a couple of things. One, we're blessed, of course, as Catholics to have great tradition, liturgy. Liturgy should draw people in. It's not just an obligation, you know, oh, I got to go to Mass. Mm-hmm. It, it is the source and summit of our life, or it should be. And, and it's up to us to really make that a good uh, celebration experience to, to help draw people in. So we have to work on that. I think people, a lot of, especially younger people today, they're really drawn to the mystery, you know, more. And so um, we're getting back to some of that mm-hmm. stuff that you know that that's really important i think and and just things like incense or the bells at mass or you know kneeling uh, just some more of the reverence and silence that's really appealing to people and um, i remember fighting that even as a young priest like oh come on we got to move on this is we're, we're, we're going to draw more people in if we're more excited about our faith and mm-hmm. rah rah well there's a time for everything but got to really celebrate the mystery of of who we are as well 
but also I think it's just kind of holding up a mirror. We need to hold up a mirror to ourselves and others. And by that, I mean to say, and I've said this before in homilies and talks, right now in our country, in our society, you can have anything you want. You can do anything you want. You could be anything you want and then change tomorrow if you want. You just declare who you are today and who you want to be tomorrow. So we have all these freedoms. It's great. And then I pause and I say, how's that working out for us? You know, I mean, and I think that's what I mean. We hold up a mirror and say, all right, this is what society is giving us so-called freedoms in everything. Mm -hmm. And yet we're more miserable than ever. We're at each other's throats, depression, suicide, anxiety, way up. So I think it's going to take that. We're going to not in, not in a smug way, but in a humble way to say, we know what the answer is. The answer is Jesus Christ. But I don't think that people that we have yet embraced the problem. We have to, you know, just say, how are we doing as a society, you know, and and really be honest with that and say, actually, we're not doing so well. Mm -hmm. We're more divided. Everyone says that more divided than ever, more angry and more depressed. Well, then what's the answer? And it has to be, it's nothing in this world. It has to be from outside and that's Jesus Christ. And so I think that's going to bring people back once we realize that we don't want to live like this and we don't have to and we have the answer and it's right in front of us or within us yeah there's an inherent joy and peace and and lasting hope that comes with the christian life and it's what's drawn us in and kept us a part of this and we want to continue to share it with the world so i think that's very wise to think of it in those terms i do want to discuss holiness because we we ask every guest this but i think It'll be especially instructive, and people will be excited to hear from a bishop. So what is holiness to you? Who have been some of the models of holiness in your life? I think holiness for me is, it's really just living your vocation. And by that, I mean purposefully, like... I think of saints. That's I, I know that's what we think of when sure. we think of holiness right away. But there are others, of course, non-official saints. But I think of you know Saint Andre, obviously a Holy Cross brother, mm-hmm. our only saint. Our founder is a blessed. He's almost there. He's major minor leagues. He's he's going to get the call <laughs> right, soon. Get, get the call. But um, brother Andre, you know Saint Andre. Just how is he holy? He's known as a holy saintly man. Why? What did he do? He spent most of his life at the door, mm-hmm. welcoming people to the college in Montreal. And while they're waiting to talk to someone more important, he would pray with them or anoint them with the oil that burned in front of the statue of Saint Joseph. And they reported being healed or being heard or being listened to or being loved. And he's known as one of the holiest persons ever in, in Canada and North America. You know, mm-hmm. something like that, or just just other saints, other holy people who quietly, humbly live their lives well. I think it's it's getting in touch with that, what we were calling that, that interior peace, that joy, and then living out of that um, and sharing that with others. Recently, for me, uh, hopefully this is relevant quickly, um, one of my new favorite biblical quotes comes from the book of Zechariah. Now, not many people quote Zechariah, okay. and I never did until recently, but there's, a, there's this great verse in there when it's talking about the coming of the kingdom and and the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so the days are coming when 10 pagans will take hold of every Jew by the shirt and say, take me with you for I know that God is with you. Mm. 
And for me, I think, wow, that's the way to live. If we could live where people would just not grab our shirt, but, you know, come up to us and say, I don't know what it is about you, but I want that. I want that. I think that's holiness and that's, that's living as God intends us to live. That's what Jesus came to do. He, he attracted people. Yes, by his words, but people were reaching out just to touch him, you know, just to have a shadow pass over them. I mean, that's holiness that, and so if we could live in such a way where we would bring people to the Lord and bring the Lord to people by the way we live, I think then we'd be on our way to holiness. Yeah, thank you. I would imagine that there's some challenges inherently for you personally being a bishop in terms of trying to strive after this call to holiness, to live a holy life, not only because you're so visible in in your diocese, but probably just pulled in a lot of directions in terms of maintaining a, a life of prayer and, and your connection with your vows and, and all the promises that you've made. What have been some helpful things that have helped you as you've sought after holiness, even now as a bishop? You're right. You know, a lot of a lot of things talk about distractions. It's just email and meetings and office work where I spend a lot of my time, unfortunately, right now. Um, that's a huge distraction to holiness and living my vocation as a priest and as a religious, former religious, whatever, <laughs> in the world. What's helped me, though, is to just it, it go on retreats, spiritual direction, to call me back to say, look, all right, that stuff's important and I need to do it. But what's more important, and that is that I start every morning, every day, with an extended time of prayer. I am so blessed. I have right next to my bedroom another room which has, which is the chapel and it has uh, the tabernacle right there. Mm. So I can go in there. It's not mass. I don't want to scandalize anyone. I take my coffee and I'm there for 45 minutes praying mm. the office of readings, morning prayer, meditation every morning. That's, uh, it's more than I could do even as a priest in a parish because I had mass and meetings right away. But now I can just take that time. That's been extremely important. And um, many times like that, just to stop and catch myself and say, you know what? I don't need to do this right now. I don't need email. I don't need meetings. I just need to stop and go pray for the diocese or discern about this important decisions coming up. So that's it. It's, it's being reminded again and again at, to, to do what's most important, and that is to pray and to strive for that holiness that we talked about. Yeah, it's probably a temptation for all of us to think that our work is so important that prayer or those things can be pushed aside. But I think hearing it from you that that you continue to make prayer a priority and it's such a necessary part of your life is is instructive to all of us to to maintain that as well. Yeah, it's it's uh, you're right though you, because we're always tend and it even says this in our constitutions and Holy Cross it says we may be tempted to say that it's our work that supplies for our prayer. I mean, after all, I'm I'm saying mass, I'm hearing confessions, mm-hmm. and you know that's prayer. But the constitutions kind of correct that and say that's that's good. That's public prayer. We all need to sit before the Lord. We all need to pray. We all need to be instructed and led by the Lord, and that comes through prayer and reflection. Indeed. Well, Bishop Walk, we're out of time for today, but I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me on the podcast and to share this wisdom. I, I love that motto of come follow me and and the, this witness that we've heard that you've answered the phone and, and answered God's call in multiple ways and encouraged us to follow the Lord in whatever way he's calling us in our lives. I think this story will really help people as they listen to it and just appreciate your your wisdom and taking the time today. 
My pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And I hope uh, and pray that God blesses all of us, all who are listening, especially and who will listen, that God will assure you of his love and his abiding presence today and every day of your life. Well, great. Thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in Deep podcast. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast at any service of your choosing, to rate the podcast if you really enjoyed it, certainly most of all to share it with anyone who might be inspired by what Bishop Walk has said today, and to be part of our Notre Dame Faith in Deep family, to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. We thank you for being with us, and until next time, you'll be in our prayers. God bless. Mm-hmm.